Hello and welcome to the Review of Democracy. I'm Lorena Dracula, your host, and joining me today is Cristobal Rovira Kaltwasser, professor at the Institute of Political Science at the Catholic University of Chile, an associate researcher at the Center for Social Conflict and Cohesion Studies, and the director of the Laboratory for the Study of the Far Right. We are here today to discuss the latter topic, more specifically the rise of the far right in Latin America. Cristobal, welcome to the podcast. Many thanks, Lorena, for the invitation. Very happy to be here. So for the first question, in recent years, the surge of these far right movements and ideologies across Latin America has sparked intense debates and raised critical questions about the social, political and economic fabric of these nations. However, a wide amount of the literature on the far right does still focus on the European or US-specific context. So the question would be, could we specify who or what do we talk about when discussing the far right in Latin American context? And are there any similar ideological components to the far right political programs in Latin America and in Europe? And if so, which elements stand out? Thanks, Lorena. That's a, that's a good question and a starting point for, for the conversation of today. And as you were saying already in the, in the question, I think the whole literature on the far right has started mainly on Western Europe, precisely because of the rise of the Front National and then for the Austrian Freedom Party, then started to get also attention in Eastern Europe, particularly after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the expansion of democratic policies in Eastern Europe, but also the rise of different far-right actors within the Eastern European context. I came to, to Chile almost 10 years ago, and I remember that when I arrived here and I told my colleagues that I'm doing research on the far-right and on the populist radical right, everybody told me, well, this is something that is happening very, very far away from Latin America. It's not related to us. And I was thinking, well, maybe, but it's a question of time. And in fact, then we saw the rise of Donald Trump. Then for the first time, I think people in Latin America started to think maybe this is something that might happen here as well. And then we had Bolsonaro in Brazil. And after that, I see that slowly we are getting more research into the far right in Latin America, precisely because of the rise of Bolsonaro, but also because of the emergence of many other populist radical right actors or far right forces within the Latin American context. Nevertheless, the question about the concepts that we use, it's a bit tricky, precisely because the research agenda started in Western and Eastern Europe. And then I think it's important to ask ourselves, to what extent can we use the same kind of concepts to understand the reality of other regions? Today, we are going to talk about Latin America, but I think the main, the same question, it's relevant if we think, for example, about Southeast Asia or also Australia or other places of the world. But nevertheless, if we try to adapt the sort of conceptualization to the Latin American context that we know from Europe, I think it works relatively well, but with certain caveats. I mean, the first point is that when we are talking about the far right, the main distinction is between the far right and the mainstream right. And the distinction is based mainly on two criteria. The first one is we assume that right-wing actors are going to politicize right-wing ideas, but the mainstream right is going to do it in a relatively moderate way, whereas the far right is going to do it in a very radical way. So in this sense, the first attribute has to do with the way in which these right-wing ideas are going to be politicized, so how radical they're going to be. But the second dimension is even more relevant, that this has to do with the relationship with the democratic regime. 
mainstream right actors are fine with democracy and particularly with liberal democracy, whereas far right actors are against the democratic regime, most of them with the liberal component, that this is in particularly the populist radical right. If we take that these two main criteria and we try to adapt to the Latin American context, I would say that it travels relatively well. And when we think about Bolsonaro in Brazil or Bukele in El Salvador, these are far-right politicians in the sense that they propose right-wing ideas, but in a very radical way. But the second component that we spoke before, it's also very present, and this has to do with a very difficult relationship with the liberal democratic system. But the, the last point that I want to emphasize here has to do also with the ideological components. If we think about the far right in Europe, we think about immigration. That's a key issue. And if you think about the far right in Latin America, immigration is not really a problem. To a certain extent, because there are not too many people coming to Latin America, Although, if we have time, we can talk about Chile, my own country, in which we have a relatively big influx of immigrants. And this is why the far right in the Chilean case is politicizing that dimension as well. But in the rest of Latin America, this is not the issue. So the question is, which are the issues that are politicizing far right politicians within the Latin American context? And we have just done a workshop here in Santiago de Chile a couple of months ago in which we invited scholars from different countries. And then if we try to identify which is the minimal common denominator, we identify two issues that from ideological point of view are being politicized. And this has to do with moral conservatism. So taking very harsh stances on issues related, for example, to gay rights and abortion. And the second aspect that we identify in all far-right politicians across of Latin America has to do with what we call in, in, in Spanish mano dura. This is like having like iron fist policies against crime. So, and these are the two issues that all these actors are politicizing that to a certain extent makes them different from mainstream right politicians within the Latin American context. And last point that with us, uh, we can continue the conversation is that if you think about these definitions that I'm using here, and also the way in which the ideas are being politicized in Latin America, from my experience, one of the books that I have found so fascinating, it's by Lenka Bustikova. She has written on the far right in Eastern Europe. And the argument that she makes, although she uses it for Eastern Europe, I think it travels relatively well to Latin America and probably beyond, is that the key issue of the far right is that they're involved in the politicization of certain minorities they're getting more rights across time. If you think about the European context, this is related to immigrants. Immigrants have been always in, in Europe, but in the last decades, societies started to get more aware about restrictions toward immigrants and started to adapt towards immigrants. And because of that, then you have like the politicization of that sort of policies. And this is what the main the radical right is doing or the far right. In the Latin American context, as I mentioned before, this is not related to immigration. And the minorities that are being here getting more rights in the last decade, it's mainly women and to a certain extent, the gay population. And because we see the adaptation of the state towards those minorities, now we have the backlash in the sense that you have like these actors at the elite level, far-right politicians, they are politicizing that dimensions. But again, the far-right in this sense, and with that, I close that, it's not about specific issues. It's not about, in this sense, immigration or sexual politics. It's related to the politicization of certain minorities that are getting 
rights across time. And which are the minorities that are gaining more weight? It varies across different regional contexts, I would say. This is very interesting, but it just kind of pops out to me that you didn't mention populism, actually, or nativism, the two key characteristics that you otherwise do define the populist radical right by. Yes, the, the reason why I'm doing that is because I think that the populist radical right is a subtype of the far right. And it's the subtype that it's the most relevant across of the Western European context and to a certain extent also across of Eastern European context. But if we think about the Latin American context, I mean, the actors that really fit the definition of the populist radical right are a few. Whereas if we are talking about the far right, which is broader, in which the populist radical right is in there, then you will see a lot of far-right politicians within the, the Latin American context. Just to give you an example, so normally the literature makes a distinction between the populist radical right and the extreme right. The populist radical right, it's less radical than the extreme right, in particularly because the populist radical right is attacking only the liberal component of democracy, whereas the extreme right is attacking democracy per se. If you use that sort of definition in, in the Latin American context, Bolsonaro, it's a nice example to see whether the definition fits. Bolsonaro really fits the definition of the populist radical right. He's articulating populist tropes, he's authoritarian as well. And to a certain extent, he's nativist, although nativism is not related towards immigrants, it's much more related to indigenous communities and the Afro-American uh, population in Brazil. But the point is that the more Bolsonaro was getting into the end of his government, the more authoritarian he started to be. And then the distinction between the populist radical right and the extreme right, it gets very complicated. And as you probably know, at the end of his government, we saw that it was this attack against like institutions of democracy in Brasilia, which to a certain extent were orchestrated by himself. And then you see, this is not against liberal democracy, this is against democracy per se. And this is why I think that at least for the Latin American context, but I suppose for the rest of the world, we should talk about the far right per se and identify probably some actors that might fit the definition of the populist radical right. But these are going to be a few of them, I think. But so even with this wider definition of the far right, you argue basically that this is a relatively recent phenomenon in Latin America. Now, I I know that it's hard to make any kind of generalizations about this huge territory, basically, but still, are there any common underlying socioeconomic conditions, cultural shifts, or political influences that have converged to propel the popularity of far-right ideologies and actors in the region? Yes, uh, as you were already saying, it's a big question. It's difficult to identify like the sort of general theory, but there are a couple of arguments that are important to, to consider here. And to make a long story short, I would say there are three main arguments about why the far right is gaining traction across of Latin America. The first one is what I will call punishment of incumbents. If you think about Latin America, for a long period of time, particularly seeing the ends of the 1990s, we had a lot of left-wing politicians coming into power. Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, Rafael Correa in Ecuador. Also in my own country, in Chile, we had the socialist government. In Brazil, it was the same. These were different kinds of left-wing actors. Some of them were more radical, other ones were more, more moderate. But since the beginning of the 2000s, we have across of Latin America the so-called pink tide or left-wing wave. But this pink tide came to an end. 
to a certain extent because of corruption scandals and also because of political economy. The boom of the, the commodities went down and because of that for left-wing governments were quite difficult to continue in power. And this is why across region you started to see that many left-wing governments were defeated because the voters wanted to punish them because they were not able to deliver or because they were involved in corruption scandals. And this opens up the electoral opportunity structure for the rise of new actors that are going to be against the left. So if you want to see the first point that I'm making here is sort of circumstantial. So why the far right is gaining traction, it has to do with this punishment of the incumbents. The second aspect, I think it's something broader that also travels to the European context, and this is the crisis of the mainstream right. In many Latin American countries, we see that mainstream right actors are not able to develop political programs that are attractive to large segments, to large segments of the population. And when this happens, then there is a bigger chance that far-right politicians will try to push their own agenda to steal the voters of the mainstream right. Chile, for example, my own country is a good example of that. We have had a mainstream right that has been relatively successful. In fact, they were able to conquer executive office. And to do that, they were moderating over time. So the mainstream right in Chile at the beginning of the 1990s was very conservative on the economic dimension and also on the social cultural dimension. But they started to moderate and precisely because of the moderation process, they were able to get into office. But as soon as they started to get into office, then you have the usual problems that sometimes you're not able to deliver. And also because of this moderation process, some segments of the electorate started to feel a bit awkward with the mainstream right. And then they open up a space for the rise of the far right. And the third argument that I think it's not only a Latin American argument, it has to do with diffusion processes. I think if you are a politician in Latin America nowadays, and if you turn on the TV, you will hear about Modi in India. You will hear about Donald Trump in the United States. You will hear about Erdogan in Turkey. And you will see, it looks that these guys are doing something that is working relatively well in those countries. Many of those far-right politicians within the Latin American context are looking at what is happening beyond Latin America, and they're trying to emulate some of these policies. And at the same time, we know that this diffusion process is not only a sort of emulation, there is also diffusion in the sense that some of these actors in the Northern Hemisphere are trying to diffuse these ideas to the Southern Hemisphere. They get together, there are some meetings. Vox in Spain, for example, the Populist Radical Right Party has been very active in trying to develop a network between far-right politicians in Spain and Europe with Latin American actors. And through that sort of process, then you see a sort of diffusion there. And my final point, so I just mentioned like three ideas. So diffusion processes, crisis of the mainstream right and punishment of incumbents that try to help us to understand why the far right is gaining traction across of Latin America. But I want to close here with a final reflection about an argument that sometimes you hear, particularly in the media, but I think it's it's a non-argument, or to put it another way, in which the empirical facts shows that this is not happening. And this is the argument about a backlash, in the sense that one explanation might be that voters in Latin America are getting more conservative. But if you look at 
public opinion data across of Latin America, and by the way, this is something that is happening in many other places of the world, the same for Western Europe, we don't have empirical evidence that voters in Latin America are getting more conservative. It's not that Latin American voters are getting more against abortion or are getting more against sexual politics. To be honest, it's much more the opposite, that many voters are getting more liberal across time. The same happens again in many other places. And this opens up the question about the puzzle. So how can we explain that if voters are not getting more conservative, far-right politicians are gaining traction? And this has to do with the capacity of these far-right politicians to politicize certain issues that are, I would say, niche, relevant for niche sections of society. So getting very harsh, for example, on sexual politics. It might be that you mobilize evangelical communities with that, but this is not necessarily the huge chunk of the population. But at the same time, they're articulating other ideological components, for example, this demand for iron fist policies on crimes, which is something that a lot of people in Latin America are worried about, or they're politicizing issues of corruption. And through that, they're able to sell a package, so to say an ideological package that it's interesting for different chunks of the population. But again, it's not that the majority per se is getting more towards the far right. It's only a small section, but the far right is smart enough to politicize other issues as well. And through that, they can try to open up the sort of electorate that they can mobilize. Yeah, that's really fascinating. So maybe also from this perspective, it will be a question why the left has not been able to mobilize on these exact same issues like crime and corruption? For, for the left, the issue of crime is problematic because if you are a progressive actor, so you want to stick to the rule of law and you will say, okay, we have to deal with crime, but we have to do it within the boundaries of the rule of law. And the problem is, and here the far right has a comparative advantage because what the far right is going to do and it's going to say, remember again, that the far right has an ambivalent relationship with liberal democracies against democracy. They will say, we don't care about human rights. We just have to kill those guys. It's a message that, of course, is awful. But for a big chunk of the population, they're going to say, that's fine. We just want to live in, in a society in which crime is not a problem. And if the price of that is we have to say no to, to human rights to certain sections of the population, we are fine to that. That's the story of Bukele in Salvador. And he's hugely popular, although the policies that he's implementing are very, very harsh against the rule of law. But this is something that for the left is very tricky. And to be honest, also, the left has not been able to develop a policy program that on the one hand sticks to the rule of law, but on the other hand, it's effective on dealing with crime. The main reason is dealing with crime, it's tough. It's not going to be solved from one day to another. Probably you have to develop a long-term policy that it has to do with many different dimensions. But again, this is an issue that for the left, it's very difficult to politicize. Um, you already did mention that uh, basically far-right actors switch some of their positions or policies when they do finally come to power. Uh, and we've had some far right actors come to power in the Latin American in in Latin America in the past uh, ten years or so. So, is there some kind of noteworthy ideological transformation happening with far right parties or actors once they are in office? Well, regarding far right actors in Latin America in office, the two clear examples are Bolsonaro in Brazil, who was able to govern for four years, and the second example is Bukele, who is 
the president, the current president of El Salvador. Uh, there are going to be elections in January in El Salvador. And according to all polls, he's going to be reelected. And if you look at these two case studies, uh, there are to a certain extent difference in the sense of their starting points. If you look at Bolsonaro, for example, he has been always a far right backbencher. He has been always part of the political system with small political parties. And he has been always politicizing a clear far right ideology in terms of issues related with crime, issues related to conservative positions on sexual politics, and in many other dimensions. Bukele, it's fascinating because he started much more as a leftist, progressive. And then he started to fight against the two-party system in El Salvador. And then he was able to got elected with a sort of outsider ticket, so to say. But if you look at his program at the beginning, he was relatively progressive on certain dimensions. But during his tenure, he started to get very conservative, particularly on the issue of abortion. So at the beginning, he was relatively pro-abortion. Now he's completely against that. And the same with, with gay rights. And this comes back to the issue about the ideological components. These are leaders, if you think broader across of Latin America, that their ideological starting points might differ. But at the end of the day, they form like a sort of family because they get together on certain issue dimensions, which, again, are mainly moral dimensions and second iron first policies. And precisely because of that, once these leaders come into power, the issues that they want to push are related to these two main dimensions. Of course, depending on the context, they might try to politicize other ones, but they're particularly harsh on crime. And because of that, they're going to push for certain reforms that are problematic for the rule of law. And here, the case of El Salvador, it's the most intimidating one. And if you look at different reports from Human Rights Watch, for example, they will show that behind the success, the success of the policies of Bukele, you see that the downside of that is like many people got incarcerated that it should be incarcerated, that the situation in prisons are very, very harsh and issues like that. So overall, I would say if you want to find like one sort of commonality, and this is something that you already see in other places of the world, has to do with democratic backsliding, but in a slow motion process. It's not that once these leaders come into power, they will destroy the system from one day to another, but they will start tweaking the system slowly so that the liberal component of democracy diminishes. So in Brazil, because Bolsonaro was only four years in government, the situation was still under control. But my fear is that if Bukele gets reelected and the possibility is very high, this, this process of democratic backsliding will continue and might happen same, same, something similar in these other places of the world in which you have a transition towards a sort of competitive authoritarian regime. Now, I also wanted to talk about the issue of, of conservatives, because it seems to me that the lesson from Europe, kind of, is that the far-right forces are most dangerous, basically, when forming alliances with the conservatives and this is even often how they come to power. Um, so I was wondering if you could also talk a little bit about how the the far-right actors, uh, have they been successful in forming alliances or collaborating with mainstream conservative parties? And how have these collaborations contributed to their integration into the political landscape? Yes, it's an interesting question and here, it's important to consider a main difference between Europe and Latin America, and it has to do with how governments work. 
we have presidential systems here. And because we have presidential systems, this means that if you have a very popular candidate, that candidate might be able to win the election, although that leader will not necessarily control the parliament. And this is why very often in Latin America, you have the situation in which you might have a strong president who nevertheless is not able to govern because he or she doesn't have a majority in Congress. This was to a certain extent the situation of Bolsonaro, that he was very popular. He was able to expand his base of support at the Congress level, but at the same time, he didn't have a majority. And on the top of that, in the case of Brazil, which is a federal country, it has many layers. And this is, to a certain extent, what was able to save Brazilian democracy during the Bolsonaro government, because there were so many different actors involved. And this diminished the capacity of Bolsonaro of pushing his agenda. But again, because he didn't have a majority in Congress. And Bolsonaro, but this happens with many far-right leaders across of Latin America, they're very bad about forming coalitions. To a certain extent, because these tend to be very authoritarian persons, that they want to stick to their sort of program, but they don't want to bargain, so to say. In the case of Bukele, what happens is that he was able to get elected, but at the same time to get a majority in Congress. And this is why the process of democratic backsliding in El Salvador is moving faster than in the case of Brazil. And this is also why I'm, I'm a bit more worried about the potential re-election of Bukele, because he has like enough votes to continue pushing his, his agenda. But overall, I think if you look at Latin America, the politics of coalition making shows that Far-right politicians are not really willing to build coalitions. They just want to govern with themselves and also with the people that are behind them. But normally they try to attack the mainstream right rather than build support with them because they know that if they have a strong president, they will try to stick with that sort of agenda and try to attack all the others who are against the, the leader, so to say. And it has to do with this personalism that I think in Latin America matters a bit more than in the European context. Well, for me, this makes complete sense for the far-right actors in office, but what about far-right parties or actors in opposition? Yes, I mean, the problem again here is that many of these far-right forces across of Latin America, they're usually based on strong leaders, and it's a key question whether these strong leaders are going to be able to build strong political organization or strong political parties. In Latin America, political parties tend to be relatively weak. And this is why it's difficult to imagine that you will see like strong far-right organizations behind those leaders. Look, for example, to Bolsonaro. I mean, Bolsonaro did, was not able to build a strong political party. Nevertheless, in Brazil, people speak on, at the academic level about Bolsonarismo. That's the main heritage that he left. I mean, Bolsonaro probably will not able to run in elections until 2030 because he has been banned because of his involvement in undemocratic politics. But I bet that Bolsonarismo will continue to exist. But Bolsonarismo, again, it's this sort of loose ideology that he was developing but as we were talking before, you don't have the organization there, but you have the ideologies that had been spread across society. And this is why I think in the Latin American context, the organization might be irrelevant, it's too harsh, but I think it might be not the key heritage of those leaders, it's much more they're able to pull different 
ideas into a sort of ideological mix that other political actors can continue to politicize without necessarily having a strong organization. Um, I was also hoping to talk about another question uh, that is quite interesting for the Latin American context is um, obviously the far right does exhibit this key ideological feature of authoritarianism. So I was wondering to what extent does the far right or do the far right actors in Latin America extend their roots to the military dictatorships of the previous century? Or basically, how does this historical context of authoritarianism uh, illuminate or complicate the relationship between the far right and democracy in the region? It's it's an interesting point that I think probably travels also beyond Latin America, that we have to think ourselves when we are talking about the far right across of different places, how authoritarian tropes might be mobilized and politicized. And this has to do with the history of different regions. When you think about authoritarianism in the Western European context or Eastern European context, it has to do a lot with fascism. That's the whole debate. Or to a certain extent, Eastern Europe, also with the communist past and the legacy, so to say. If you use the concept of authoritarianism in the Latin American context, this has to do way, mainly with the dictatorships that we had in the 60s and the 70s. Pinochet in Chile would be an example, or also the dictatorship in Brazil, in Argentina, and in Uruguay. And in many of those cases, what you see is that the far right is selling a sort of nostalgia about the authoritarian past. In some cases, very outspoken. I mean, Bolsonaro, he comes from the military and he very often is politicizing that sort of dimension and saying, so we had a golden past during this authoritarian rule and he's very outspoken about that. In the case of Chile, for example, the far-right politician is Jose Antonio Cast, and he's a bit smoother. He also serves the sort of nostalgia, but not because he says we need to violate human rights. He's not saying that. He's saying that was awful, but because of the issue of crime. Remember that across of Latin America, crime is one of the main issues. It's in the top agenda across the population in Latin America, whereas in, La in Europe it has to do mainly with immigration in terms of saliency in Latin America is because of crime. And what Jose Antonio Cas is doing in Chile, for example, to say, well, during the dictatorship, crime was not an issue. Of course not, because you had authoritarian regimes that were controlling the streets and, and violating human rights. So, and it's smart it's, it's enough to say, we don't want to have the military on the streets, but there was a period of time in which crime was not a problem, so to say. So, and many of these far-right politicians are selling that sort of nostalgia, so to say, about this golden period in which law and order was respected. But also the other component that is interesting is that if you think about the notion of the far-right and, for example, the classical book of Kasmude on the populist radical right, in which he say that authoritarianism is one of components, the way in which he's thinking about authoritarianism, Mude, is related to Theodore Adorno, this argument about that the authoritarian mentality has to do with having very clear hierarchies within society. And this is also very clear in the Latin American context, because all these far-right politicians are saying, we had this period in the past in which there was a clear authority, which were mainly male and we are not so fine with all these accommodation policies toward gender 
in which nowadays we don't know which are the roles that we should have within society. And this is also the way in which you have this sort of nostalgia that is being politicized in the Latin American context as well. Yeah, on that note, I would really like us to talk about Javier Millet as well. So we recently had the elections and he obviously did not have this huge success that maybe was expected from the elections, the primaries in August. So we're still waiting for the final result of the runoff. But do you think that this rise of the far right in the case of Argentina or in other countries, and again to generalize, is more of a result of a momentary crisis within democratic systems, or is it a more enduring feature of democracy? Well, again, I mean, it's it's not so easy to generalize from one case study, but I think the Argentine case study is a good one because Javier Millet, this is a guy that two years ago didn't exist at all. And he's somewhat that nowadays was able to get 30% of the vote and We'll see what happens in the ballotage, but there is a fair chance that he might even win. I mean, we don't know. But I mean, for someone that was not existent two years ago and now he was able to pull together the second majority, it is quite a fit. So how can we explain that? And to a certain extent, the three arguments that we were talking before applied very well to that case. First of all, the rise of Millet has to do with the punishment of the incumbents. And this has to do with the critical situation of Argentina. You have the Peronist government, which is center left, which is really mismanaging the economy. We have an inflation that is 140%. Poverty levels are above 40%. So a lot of people are angry. And what Millet is doing, it's criticized very, very harshly in combat with a very clear populist rhetoric. He's the whole time talking about La Casta which is like the elite. And then he's bringing together mainstream right and also, but in particularly the Peronist party, so to say. And because people are so angry with the incumbent, so to say, it makes sense that he's able to mobilize all those who are angry with the current government. At the same time, you have a crisis of the mainstream right because the government before the Peronist was Mauricio Macri, who was the mainstream right. And his main message was that he was able to to deliver in economic terms. But Macri was not able to control inflation either and was not able to provide uh, economic growth. And because of that, many people are saying, we had the mainstream right in government, they didn't deliver. Now we have the left in government, they didn't deliver. So we need to try something different. And the third aspect is diffusion. I mean, when you see, when you see the sort of jargon that Millet is developing, this is a lot related to the ideas that are popping up in different places of the world and also within the Latin American context. That it is important to realize that these politicians get together. I mean, for example, the son of Bolsonaro went now to Buenos Aires and Jose Antonio Castro went to Buenos Aires to be with Millet to, 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 to push his agenda to a certain extent. But they get together. They try to understand which are the issues that are being politicized there. And they try to develop, to a certain extent, this sort of global idea. And this is why, going back to your question, I think that, of course, this has to do with something Latin American. For example, this aspect of huge inflation crisis is something that you don't see necessarily in other places of the world. But at the same time, it's a global trend. It's something that is happening in many places of the world. And what you see is like local adaptations of the far-right script to different 
context. So in the case of Latin America, for example, Millet is politicizing the issue of inflation, something that you don't see necessarily in other places of the world. But at the same time, he's bringing in different ideas and developing this sort of ideological mix that works relatively well for the Latin American context. I think we need to try to push the agenda beyond Europe. I think most of the studies that we have of the far right are based on the Western and Eastern European context. We have a, not, a lot of knowledge based on that region. But what we need nowadays, I think, is to try to expand the agenda to other places of the world to do something truly comparative. And to that, I think we'll get a better understanding about which are the issues that the far right is politicizing and to what extent the far right is attacking the democratic system in different places of the world through different mechanisms, but probably with the same outcome, which is a process of democratic backsliding. Thank you. Uh, that brings us to the end of another episode of Review of Democracy. I want to extend my heartfelt gratitude to Professor Cristobal Rovira Kaltwasser for his insights on the rise of the far right in Latin America. Thank you once again. Many thanks, Lorena, for the invitation.